grab your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Exodus. Starting our series going through the book of Exodus, we'll cover probably the uh, first half of Exodus this year and then take a break, but we're going to be in Exodus for a while. So I'm excited about that. I think you guys should be too. Uh, and I'm excited to be back. It's been a few weeks since I've been able to come here and uh, preach to you all, so I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, going to try to rein in everything I've got, so we're not here until about 3 o'clock, but uh, I will do my best uh, to stay focused on the text this morning as we begin our series going through the book of Exodus. If you're looking for that in your Bible, it's the second book in your Bible. It goes Genesis, then Exodus. So if you start at the beginning, you should be able to get there pretty quickly, and we'll be at the very beginning, chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. It should be on the screen behind me if you can't find it in time. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. In Detective Comics number 27, which was released in 1939, the character known as Batman was introduced, or at least a uh, character bearing some kind of resemblance to Batman was introduced. In this story, which is really only six pages long, there's a man who's mysteriously killed. The police commissioner, Gordon, tries to solve the crime. His friend, Bruce Wayne, mysteriously disappears as he's trying to investigate everything. And then, as the murderer is caught in the act, trying to kill another person, his business partner, a man in a bat costume shows up, pushes him into a vat of acid, and then leaves. That is the first time that we ever know anything about this man that most of us have probably heard of, now called Batman. That's the end of the story. The first time we see one of the most popular literary characters in our time is a short, kind of nonsensical, puzzling story that's really only kind of barely about a man who dresses up like a bat to fight crime. If you read that comic today, it's really unsatisfying. You're not given much information about who this Bruce Wayne guy is, why he pushes people into vats of acid, why he dresses up like a bat while he does it. To make the story compelling, what you really need is some context for how you got to this point. You need to know how we got here. Why is he this way? What's happening in this story? A crazy rich guy who murders murderers in his underwear, that's only kind of compelling for a short amount of time. The, you really need the, the more details to come behind this. You need to know that he's actually a tortured orphan who wages a war on crime as a response to the death of his parents who were killed right in front of him. That's a guy with some depth. That's a guy you can write stories about for, I don't know, 80 years or so. That's a guy whose movies and TV shows are going to make a lot of money one day. We care more when we know how we got here, when we know what happened to get us here. What came before helps you actually understand what's happening now. These first eight verses of Exodus give us a little bit of insight into how we got here. 
really the, the book of Genesis gives us the, the full story of how we got here, but the beginning of Exodus gives a short reminder of the most immediate details so that we don't forget where everything is at right now when we enter into the story in Exodus. These verses we'll see today are going to give us four introductory facts that you need to know to understand Exodus. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, four introductory facts that you need to know to understand the Exodus. But before we focus on those verses in particular, let me just briefly talk about the importance of Exodus in the Bible, of this book, this one central story in the middle of the beginning of our Bibles. Exodus may be the, the second book in the Torah and in our Bibles, but for the people of Israel, it was likely the most important book. I was talking to a friend recently who preached through Exodus at their church, and he said the more he read it, the more he came to think that it was actually the most important book in the entire Old Testament. It's in Exodus that the people of God were saved, that God revealed himself to his people as a deliverer, not just a creator. It's in Exodus that they get most of the ceremonial, most of the religious laws that show them how they should actually live in light of who God is in light of his salvation, how God is to be worshipped. If there's no exodus, there's no Israel. There's no nation. There's no kingdom. There's no temple, no laws. Exodus is when God's people really become God's people as we know and understand them today. God freeing them from slavery, bringing them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, it's the primary picture of God's salvation that gets referred to repeatedly in the Old Testament. When they in Israel thought of God, before they thought of anything else, they would think of this book. They would think of the Exodus, that he's mighty, but he's mighty to save them, that he's holy, but he draws them into his presence, that he's harsh toward his enemies, but long-suffering toward his people. If you want to know what God is like, then I think Exodus is a great place to start, that's why the, the Old Testament keeps talking about the Exodus over and over. In fact, if you want a pretty good summary this week of how we got here, of the, the large contours of our story and what's happening here, I think you could read Psalm 105 and it would give that to you. It recounts the story of the Jewish people from God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring them to Egypt to their oppression in Egypt, God's deliverance of them out of Egypt, and his providence for them in the wilderness, how he brought them out with joy and with riches. In Jeremiah, when God is telling his people how he is going to, de to deliver them out of the exile that they're about to enter, he says this in Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. You see, even hundreds of years later, in the time of Jeremiah, after the rise and fall of the nation of Israel, the Exodus is still the golden years that they're referring back to. When they think of God, they think of God who brought them out of Egypt. They talk about what he did in the Exodus. But God here says that a greater deliverance is coming. I think we'll see that as we look through this book. This isn't a one-time thing. Most of the prophets, most of the Psalms refer to the Exodus in the same way. Whenever they think of God as deliverer, they think of this instance, of his acts in saving them out of Egypt. 
So this story we're looking at in Exodus this year, that's the central salvific event of the Old Testament. I can't emphasize that enough. You cannot understand your Bible, really, without knowing who God is in the Exodus. You're going to have a lesser understanding of God without this book, without this story. You're not going to realize the the fullness of the salvation God has given his people, of how he frees them from the slavery of sin and death, if you don't see the lengths to which he goes to deliver his people from literal slavery in this book. But to understand Exodus, you have to see how we got here. So these first eight verses give us some context and set the stage for what's happening. From them this morning, we'll be able to see four introductory facts that you need to know to understand Exodus. And thus, I think, by extension, to understand the gospel as it's given to us in the Bible. And the first introductory fact that you need to know to understand Exodus from today's text is that the people of Israel are in Egypt at the start of this book. The people of Israel are in Egypt. Look back at those first uh, five verses or so. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. So this verse is referring to Israel not as a nation, not as a people, how we typically think of Israel today, but Israel as a person. Israel is a man a man with sons here. And when you get to Exodus in the Bible, after having read Genesis, this wouldn't be confusing for you because Jacob, the the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the father to these 11 people listed here, had his name changed to Israel by God. And he just died at the, the end of Genesis, passed on to this next generation, and we are able to just pick up the story right at the beginning of Exodus in the same spot. But the people of Israel who really are kind of the third main character in Exodus. There's God, there's Moses, and then kind of the people, a big group that's referred to there, the Israelites. These people, they're not Israelites in the same way that we are Americans. They don't have a, a national identity. They don't have a geographic identity. They're a family people. So don't think of them as the equivalent of Canadians. Think of them as the equivalent of the Millers of the Smiths, the Joneses. Because Israel is a person, the people of Israel are Israel's family. So whenever we read Exodus and see God repeatedly bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, we are able to understand that Exodus is a story of God saving a family of people, calling a family to himself, making a family through his salvation. And this family, these names that are listed here, that's going to become really important whenever you read the rest of the Old Testament because just as Israel's, Jacob's family, becomes the Israelites through the course of Exodus, the same thing happens with the Reubenites, the Simeonites, the Levites, the Gadites, etc. Israel's sons are eventually going to make up and become the 12 tribes of Israel with some wrinkles along the way, more or less. And God has a specific plan for each of these 12 tribes. It's not only, though, the one big family. Each of the tribes has their own identity, has their own blessing that's given to them. At the the end of uh, Genesis, they come together to form a singular people with their own blessings and identities. And at the end of Genesis, just a page or two earlier in your Bible, Jacob blesses each of his sons, and he makes promises to each of them that we're going to see come true throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And some of them, I think, in the New. So, Remember, as we go through this, that this is a family story. 
But God has a plan for each smaller part of this family as a part of his larger plan for his people, the people of Israel. And as helpful as all that may be to you as you're reading Exodus and Leviticus and the rest of the Old Testament, really the reason you need to know what's going on with this family today is that the family isn't where you would expect them to be. They're in Egypt. Remember, they they have a family identity, not a geographic identity. So they're not in Israel because there's not a place, Israel, yet. But they're also not in Canaan. And if you read through Genesis, Canaan's where you would almost expect them to be, were it not for the end of Genesis. Throughout most of the Bible, the land of Canaan, that's the promised land. That's where most of the people of Israel almost always are. But at the beginning of Exodus, they're in Egypt, not in Canaan. Genesis starts at the beginning of the universe, but it ends with the longest section that's focused on one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. The final 15 chapters are all Joseph's story, how God would continually work good for what was meant for evil in Joseph's life, how he would eventually lead him to be the second in command over all of Egypt, just the one directly under Pharaoh, how Joseph's family, Jacob's family, all his brothers, his father, how they would leave Canaan, leave the promised land, and they would settle in Egypt to save them from the famine that was back in the promised land. So that's how we get to the people of Israel dwelling in Egypt rather than Canaan at the beginning of Exodus. The significance of them being here rather than there is that Canaan is where they're supposed to be. In the story of God, what God said, what he promised for his people is, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to lead you all the way over to Canaan. That's your place. That's the land I've set aside for you. That's what I promised for you. But at the beginning of Exodus, they're not in the land that's been promised to them. They're in Egypt. In Genesis, God called Abraham. He he sent him to Canaan. He and Isaac and Jacob, they all prospered there. It seemed like God's promises were immediately being fulfilled in all of those things. But because a famine was coming, to Canaan, God moved them out of the promised land, sent them to Egypt so they would survive. Not just survive, as we'll see in a moment, but prosper. But if Canaan is the promised land, eventually they have to leave Egypt. They've got to come back for God's promises to be fulfilled. He moved them to Egypt to survive. And before they left, Israel, Jacob, he was so nervous to go that God had to assure him. Look at Genesis 46, verses 2 through 4. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, they may be leaving the promised land to to go to Egypt, But before Israel leaves, God's already promised, hey, you're leaving, but you're going to come back. This is still the promised land. This is still what I have for you. No matter what happens in Egypt, you're coming back. There's something here waiting for you. You have to know that the people of Israel are in Egypt, and therefore, while still within what God has planned for them, they're not where they're ultimately going to be, where they're ultimately supposed to be. God has a promise waiting for them that they're just not currently in, that they're looking forward to, that they're waiting on. 
The second introductory fact that you can see in these verses to help you understand Exodus is that it was the character of Joseph who brought them to Egypt. Joseph is the one who brought them to Egypt. Look back at verse 5. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. I've already told you that Joseph brought them to Egypt with him uh, where he was as the second in command. But I'm reminding you that it was Joseph who brought them to Egypt because coming to Egypt for them, though, yes, they were leaving the promised land, this was a good thing. This was a great, a glorious thing. This was God saving them by bringing them out of the promised land and sending them to Egypt. They entered this land as guests of functionally like the vice president. They had land and riches that were just handed to them when they walked in. They were brought in with joy. They were reunited as a family and feasting together in the house of functionally the vice president here. God had prepared the way for them to survive a great famine by raising up Joseph in power. Coming to Egypt, that wasn't a bad thing for them. It was a good thing. Being under Joseph's authority, that wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. God brought them to Egypt for their good when they got there. But then verse 6 happens. Verse 6 tells us that that was then. Yes, they entered in joy and gladness with all these good things, all these blessings. But some time has gone on between then and now. That was then. This is now. Joseph, he's dead. He's died. All his brothers. All that generation. Yes, those times were, were good, but we're in new times now. There's some things that have happened in the interim. Joseph, at the end of the roller coaster of his life, all the ups and downs, he lived long. He was able to see his family prosper in the land of Egypt. God used him mightily to ensure the safety of his covenant people by bringing them to Egypt. It was Joseph who brought them to Egypt because that's who God used to take them out of the famine and to provide for them in this new land. And this may be a new time, this may be a new day, But the time between the generation of Joseph and the current time of the story of Exodus, it also saw a lot of prosperity in that interim for Israel. That's the third introductory fact you need to know to understand Exodus from today's verses. The Israelites, they prospered in Egypt. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. See, God blessed the Israelites in Egypt. Even after Joseph was gone, as great as Joseph was, this still wasn't immediately, at least, the end of their good times. They were blessed generally by God as his people. They increased greatly. They became great. We saw the same thing happen to God's chosen people throughout Genesis. In the favor of the Lord, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all grew up. They all increased greatly. They all became respected men of wealth and status. And the same thing happened here with the family, the people of Israel. They grew up. They became great. They became a force within Egypt, a people to their own right with power and riches. And the language used here, I think, is really specific. The language used here is supposed to remind us when we read our Bibles of what God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And that's exactly what they did. It's exactly what happened. The Israelites in Egypt, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. 
It's not like they got there and immediately abandoned everything and God had to punish them by sending them into slavery, as we'll see. But they got there and everything was going right for them. They got there and God was blessing them. They were fulfilling the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and they did. They were. They're in the center of God's will for them. He is blessing them in line with his covenant promises. And all that happens, and it still continues into the slavery that we're going to see. As bad as things eventually get for them, this isn't a punishment for their behavior. The slavery that's coming for them, the thing we think of when we think of the beginning of Exodus, it's not punishment for them. It's not they did bad, so God sent them into slavery. It's everything was going well, and God sent them into slavery. Sometimes when seemingly bad things happen for us, it's not because you did something wrong. Sometimes it's because God is going to do something bigger that's right. Something better that's right. They were blessed in Egypt generally, but it's not where they were supposed to be. He had a greater blessing waiting for them. A greater hope waiting for them. A greater deliverance waiting for them. So it doesn't mean that they did wrong and then had to go through the suffering and persecution that they went through. It means that part of God's plan for them to lead them into something better than they had already imagined was that they would have to go through pain and suffering to get there. They were blessed generally by God, but they were also blessed numerically. They, they multiplied. There were 12 sons of Israel to start, 70 descendants in total. And then, you know, you give that a few hundred years, and these Israelites, they make up a massive portion in Egypt. They're numerically large. There are a ton of them. They are people with a different familial, a different ethnic identity than the rest of the Egyptians. And they at least theoretically have a different religious identity than the rest of the Egyptians. So they're people from a different place that don't look like them, that don't act like them, that don't believe like them, and there's a bunch of them. Yes, this is the blessing of God for them, all of those things. But even though all this comes as a result of God's blessing toward them, this is actually what's going to cause major problems for them. We'll get into that more next week as we see the, the problem that really arises at the beginning of Exodus. But Pharaoh actually has a very natural human response of fear to this situation, to this large group of outsiders who have come in, who have brought their differences with them. But now we're starting to rival the natives in terms of numbers, in terms of strength. This blessing of God is actually where Israel's problems stem from. Again, you can be doing exactly what you're doing. You can actually be receiving God's blessing and still end up in slavery. Ask Joseph. What the enemy meant for evil, God continually worked for good in his life. But for Joseph, who's rotting in jail for so much of his life before he gets to Egypt, didn't feel good, didn't seem good. But God was doing something bigger through him. He had a greater deliverance for a greater people than merely to make sure that Joseph had a nice and easy life. You can be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. God can even be blessing you. And that doesn't always mean that your problems are going to get solved. 
It doesn't mean everything is immediately easy and fun in this life. Sometimes the blessing of God actually is going to make things harder for you in the short term because he's doing something through you in the long term. This blessing of God was numerical, but it was also a blessing in strength. They grew in number, but they grew also exceedingly strong. Again, that's going to cause a problem for them. But it's also a fulfillment of part of God's promise to his people. Way back when God called Abraham, then named Abram, to enter into a covenant relationship with him, this is the promise that God gave him. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, he gave this promise to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You see, God promised to make Abraham's family into a great nation, into a large people, that they would possess a very specific plot of land in Canaan. So in the flow of God's story here at the beginning of Exodus, we have the seeds of all of those things happening, right? We're reminded that they're in Egypt right now, so that we'll remember that that's not where they're supposed to be. We're reminded that they're in Egypt, but they're not a part of Egypt. So that we'll remember that their nation, it hasn't arrived yet. They aren't his people yet in the way that they one day will be. And we're told that they multiplied and increased greatly. Because now there's a people. Now there's a number through which and in whom all of these things are going to come to pass. A great nation doesn't start with just one man. A great nation has to have people as a part of it. And going to Egypt, prospering in Egypt, was part of how God was creating his people that he would save and bring into his presence. At this point, Israel, they're big, they're strong. Everything is looking up for them in Egypt. And that's not how we typically think of the Israelites, is it? At the beginning of Exodus, we don't typically think, Bunch of people, exceedingly great, exceedingly strong, center of God's blessing. But that's actually where we find them. When we're telling the story of God delivering his people from slavery into his presence, we usually start by saying that the descendants of Jacob, that they were in slavery. But that's not how Exodus begins. It starts with blessing. It starts with prosperity. It starts with reminders of the goodness of Joseph of the providence of God and bringing them to Egypt. Exodus begins briefly, yes, but it begins with the prosperity of the Israelites. The problem for them is that that prosperity had an end date. That's the the final introductory fact you need to know to understand Exodus. The prosperity of the Israelites, initially at least, had an end date. Look at verse 8. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You see, there was an old king who was in charge back when Joseph showed up. But just as Joseph and his brothers and that whole generation died, the same thing happened with the king. Now there's a new king. Time has passed. A new ruler in charge of Egypt. Things have changed. There's a new regime, a new sheriff in town. Historically, what we see here is likely a changing of the dynasties in Egypt. There was a line of pharaohs, and then there was now a new line of pharaohs that saw things differently, that thought of things differently, that had a different kind of identity amongst this. We think Exodus Exodus happened roughly in the 15th century BC, and that would make sense because it actually aligns with the changing of the guard and the Egyptian rulers from one people group who is typically more accepting of outsiders who was closer ethnically to the Israelites themselves, to another line of rulers that shared none of those traits. That didn't like these outsiders, didn't understand why they were there. This new king, he he doesn't know Joseph. That's a shorthand way of saying that he doesn't care about Joseph. He doesn't care about Joseph's God. It's not that he doesn't know who Joseph is. He probably knew his history. He just has no particular affection or affinity toward Joseph or his people. He doesn't care what happened back there with them and him. He cares about what's happening now. He doesn't honor any of the former agreements made between the pharaohs that came before him and the people of Israel who are there now. He's not concerned with these things. He's not worried about doing right by Israel because of how great Joseph was. He may know how great Joseph was, but it just doesn't make any difference to them. He doesn't care. That has no effect on how he's going to rule right now. He has no fear of God. He has no love for his people. And I think when we hear that, we might go, oh, how dare he? But we're the exact same way, right? I mean, if you today meet a French guy on the street, you don't walk up and shake his hand and say, man, the Revolutionary War, you guys really helped us out there. That was huge. Without you guys, I'd be speaking English right now. You walk up and you don't even notice doesn't make any difference to you. You're not concerned about his welfare just because they really came through at Yorktown. You have no affinity for him or his people or his culture or his lifestyle. You don't know him. You don't know King Louis XVI. This pharaoh, he doesn't know Joseph. So this last verse in our section today, that's the transition. That's the switch, the foreshadowing for what most of us probably know is coming in the story. The people of Israel, they prospered, but that prosperity was going to come to an end. There would come a day when their greatness was going to be long forgotten. It was going to be a distant memory. Their reality would be consumed by whips and clay and straw and sweat and blood. They went from prosperity to slavery. But even then, Even in those moments, as we'll see even more clearly next week, we have to remember that God wasn't through with them. He wasn't finished blessing them. He wasn't finished providing for them. This new king may not know God, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing. It doesn't mean that the pain and slavery served no purpose. It doesn't mean that God had forgotten about his people. God knew all this was going to happen. He told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, says this, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He gave them all these promises. He said, you're going to have a promised land. You're going to take possession of this. You're going to be a great nation. But he also warned them and said, yeah, but along the way, there's going to be 400 years of slavery. There's going to be 400 years of pain and suffering. That is an inevitable part of their journey to receiving all that he had to give them. At the end of Genesis, if we were just reading through our Bible, we would already be expecting a deliverance here before we even get to the slavery. Because of how Genesis ends, chapter 50, verses 24 through 26, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how Genesis ends. With the death of this great man of God, with a promise and a prophecy, but awaiting the final fulfillment of that promise. He said, yeah, you're going to bring Joseph back, but right now, at the beginning of Exodus, he's in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus picks up that line, and it reminds us that the people of Israel are in Egypt, that Joseph is dead, that God has been good to them, but things are going to take a turn. There's still that 400 years of slavery coming that we haven't seen yet. There's still all the pain and suffering that's going to cause them to have to leave Egypt rather than just prospering there outside of the promised land for forever. So if you are someone who has the thought in the back of your head that Exodus means nothing for you, that Moses is dead and you don't know him, then let me remind you of where we're at when this book begins. God has made a promise toward his people, but they're still waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. He's called them, he's blessed them, he loves them, but everything hasn't fallen into place yet for them. In fact, as we'll see next week, even though they have these promises to hold on to, their reality is going to get really dark. There are going to be long, hard days, 400 years of them. There's going to be evil rulers that they have to suffer under. There's going to be pain, there's going to be sin. They're going to groan in pain. They're going to wonder if God hears them in the middle of their suffering. Maybe God's abandoned them. Maybe all these promises that he made, he won't follow through on. They're going to look around and wonder if being one of his people is really worth it. If being one of his people really matters, if it makes any difference in the end. They're going to think maybe life would be better if they could just be like everybody else. If they could just do what they do. If they could just serve the gods that they serve. But in the midst of their pain and slavery, the sovereign God is working his plans. He won't leave them in slavery. He'll save them. He'll deliver them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And these promises are still true for us. That situation, there are so many things that you would see in your life that would parallel that, right? I don't look around and see any literal slaves, but... I see people who are trapped in sin. I see people who are suffering in pain. I see people who are weighed down by the weight of life that is placed on them, who are carrying burdens that are too heavy for them to bear. And I remember the promises of God that he will never leave his people nor forsake them and know that those still apply to us today. 
will still apply to you now. These promises, they're still true for us. The God who will save his people in this book and bring them into his presence, he still does that for us. He still looks on his people who are trapped in sin and death. He still delivers us through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is shed for us. He still refuses to leave us out in the wilderness, to let us go back to our sin, to let us go back to our slavery, even when we would so willingly choose them over him. He still today passes over our sins because the blood of the lamb is sufficient for us. So Exodus is for you. The story of God's people, it is for you because it's your story. It's how you are saved, even now, today, whether you realize it or not. That's what you need to know to be ready for the story of Exodus. That it's a book about pain and hope. It's a book that shows us who God is and how he works, as great and terrible as that work often is to us. It's a book about the sins of mankind and what to do about them. It's a book that shows us over and over that we need salvation and that God is the one who saves his people, who provides the salvation for us. We're going to see these themes and more as we study this book together this year. And I think now you're probably ready for what comes next. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to, to gather with your people, to, to pray, to sing, to read, to hear. Thank you for the deliverance that you've given us, for the ways you've saved us, provided for us, for having plans for us and blessings for us, and giving us all those things and even more in Christ. Thank you for the gospel through which we're saved, through which we experience these blessings this salvation, this freedom. Thank you for drawing us into your presence, showing us who you are and how to worship you. We thank you for these privileges and more. And we hope that we'll see them and understand them even more as we go through this book together this year. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.